Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 7th, 2021. I'm talking to you from a very sunny, warm San Francisco in Northern California. I'm afraid my intros to this show on a daily basis seem to be becoming a bit repetitive, but uh, perhaps repetition is essential if there are certain truths out in the world. We're living in dark, dark days, much darker than the sunshine out uh, on the streets of San Francisco. Uh, perhaps we're living through what I was thinking this morning we could call an age of sadness. Um, headlines today in, in the London Guardian that more than 140,000 children in the United States have lost a parent or caregiver to COVID. Um, the Post suggests off these numbers that it's a crisis, obviously <coughs> more than a crisis. We probably need a new word to describe that. Climate crisis is also affecting us dramatically. There was a, a nice piece in LitHub this morning about how climate fiction seems to be um, uh, shaping everything and, 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 and making books and particularly novels uh, increasingly uh, apocalyptic uh, end of the world. Maybe it's not the age of sadness, but the age of crisis. Uh, meanwhile, on the... Um, on the racism front, we've just through, lived through uh, the Black Lives Matter year 2020. Uh, we have new video footage suggesting that the Minneapolis police in the uh, in the town where F uh, George Floyd died uh, discussed in the arrest after uh, Floyd's death, hunting people. Very depressing. On the economic front, Washington Post has come out with a very troubling report about the the secret lives of billionaires. Uh, I'm not a billionaire, you're not a billionaire, but there are billionaires and they're living increasingly uh, outrageous lives in our age of increasing inequality. And finally, of course, technology is contributing to this. Uh, America has been racked in the last few weeks increasingly with this crisis, this very sad crisis about Facebook. It's been revealed that Facebook um, researchers knew that Instagram made children more miserable, sadder. So this age of sadness is in itself sad, and we're going to be talking about sadness today. Uh, I have uh, the author of a, of, a, of a wonderfully illuminating, and it's not a depressing book, in some ways I think it's an uplifting book, uh, How to Be Sad. Um, she's, uh, she's one of the world's, I think, leading experts both on happiness and sadness. Uh, her name is Helen Russell, and she's talking to us from rural Denmark. Uh, Helen, um, hello. Nice to join you today. Um, am I over-dramatizing things? Are we living in an age of sadness? I think there is certainly plenty to be sad about. And I think one of the struggles many of us faced over the past year and a half is that we have we have lost many of the tools that we might might lean on typically to be sad. We've lost a lot of the support networks we, we'd usually lean on. And we have fewer rituals now to handle sadness than we've ever had before in the US and the UK, certainly. So, yeah, I think things are tough for a lot of people. Uh, your book, uh, which I've been reading all morning, um, is very personal. 
uh, you, you weave um, your own narrative, uh, your own story of your life into lots of research about sadness and happiness. What does your life tell us or what do you want your life to tell us in your new book, How to Be Sad, about sadness itself? I think for me, um, I experienced a lot of sadness earlier in my life that people didn't talk about because often we don't. Many of us will have grown up with the culture of what you don't talk about can't hurt you. And now we know that the opposite is true. So I think part of my purpose in writing the book was to share my story in the hope that, of course, it won't be the same as, as everybody else's. We've all experienced different stuff, but to encourage other people to share theirs. And, and that has, has been, I've been really heartened and honoured by how many people have wanted to share. I think there is universality in the specifics. We, we all experience stuff, it won't be the same, but we can help each other and feel less alone, I think was really important for me. Helen, I thought the book um, had uh, a, a kind of traditional narrative in the sense that we, we, we traditionally associate uh, children becoming more enlightened as their lives progress and they become more enlightened about their own state. So the book begins with you as a young girl, not really understanding the world or yourself or the people around you. And it ends with you and your mother at the graveside of, a, 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 of, of your sister who you lost at a very long age, which, which hung a very dark shadow over your life and you've only really come to terms with and your mother has come to terms with uh, in that final chapter. And uh, while I was reading your book, I'm also reading, uh, I don't know if you've seen Richard Powers' new book, Bewilderment. It's a, it's a kind of apocalyptic book uh, built around the narrative of an autistic child who seems to understand the world better than we do. Has the culture shifted? Are we treating children these days? And, and I'm not saying that Powers is typical, but he's a... He's sort of, uh, he, he touches the zeitgeist, I think, in this new book, Bewilderment. Are we treating children as being, in a sense, more enlightened uh, than in your day when you were growing up? Are children the, uh, the window onto our collective soul? I don't know. I think there is certainly a shift in how we would, for example, support a child who had experienced bereavement or any sort of loss, you know, losing a parent or, or having parents split up. I think there is a more support these days. We're more aware of, of what might be helpful, but there is still, you see it in every playground, you see it in every interaction with children. There is still this tendency of parents to minimize their children's pain. Understandably, it comes from a good place. We, we don't want the people we love to feel pain, but actually by doing this, we do them a disservice. If every time a child um, cries, we say, oh, don't cry. Or if they say, I'm scared, and you say, there's nothing to be afraid of. Or if they fall over and, and cut their knee and you say, oh, get up, you're fine. Then we are, we are really minimizing their pain. We are educating them out of what their feelings are. And this can create a, a quite a lot of shame, really. We feel, um, as a child, shame as though our emotions are not worthwhile. And that's going to lead to poor emotional regulation as we become adults. So although there has been a shift, certainly in how we uh, how we help children when they are sad, when they are little, there is still a long way to go, I would say. Uh, maybe I didn't phrase the question correctly. What I meant was that, do we think of children now as being wiser in an emotional sense than we did 30 or 40 years ago when we were growing up? I mean, I'm slightly older than you, but we're of a relatively similar generation. 
I wonder, yeah, I, uh, perhaps there is something in the, you know, the, almost the emperor's new clothes and the innocence of children and that we learn bad habits and unlearning them is a lot of the job of adulthood. There, there is possibly something in that. Um, and I guess children are taken more seriously these days than they were perhaps when we were growing up. But um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd go down completely the route of, of um, you know, looking looking to children I think we as adults have have a, a big role to play in supporting them in, in teaching kids how to to learn about sadness and how to um you know tune into what they're really feeling uh as I said you've you've written this new book how to be sad how do you write about sadness um as a certain jauntiness to your uh literary style it's very engaging it's very entertaining but it's not sad. Can you write sadly about sadness? Can one, not not you personally, but yeah. can one write sadly about sadness? I think some people can, but I, for me, there is a levity even in the most desperate situations, and even during tragedy, there will be something bizarre or ridiculous at funerals. You know, people get the giggles. So for me, it was very important that the tone reflected my my lived experience and the lived experience of, of people I know and, and care about and the people I've interviewed. So, yes, um, there is a sort of inherent uh, jauntiness and and looking on the. Um, the more ridiculous side often but I think that does reflect life so some people yes of course write about sadness in in a, a possibly bleaker way but um for me I wanted to normalize that that sadness that we will all experience from time to time and and show that we're allowed to experience more than one feeling at the same time I think that was really important to me you can feel happy and sad at the same time there is a granularity that I think many of us have perhaps lost sight of You've come to sadness from happiness as a writer. Uh, one of your last books was The Atlas of Happiness. It's a kind of cross-cultural analysis, a trip around the world, looking at different cultures in terms of who is more or less happy. Um, that journey from happiness to sadness, what particular insights does it bring to your understanding of sadness? It was really interesting for me to learn um, to, you know, take off my cultural blinkers and, and learn more about how different uh, different nations around the world experience the almost the idea of, of a good life. And and actually, I came to realize that many of us have been sold a very narrow definition, a definition of happiness that means never being sad. And I looked to cultures um, like um, like Brazil, for example, where they have the great Portuguese term sudaji, which is a, a melancholy or, or a happiness that once was, or even a happiness you merely hoped for. And this sort of nuance, this this kind of gray area, the, the bliss in reminiscing seemed to be something that I hadn't been aware of. It's something that we didn't have a vocabulary for. So that was really helpful for me to learn, to expand my, my idea of happiness. And again, um, looking at cultures like in China, the term Zing Fu, um, it means not a good mood, but a good life, one that is sufficient and sustainable and has meaning. So it won't necessarily be easy. In fact, the Chinese character for Zing derives from a character that represents torture. So life may be hard, but will have meaning. And that for me was going more back to you know Aristotle's idea of a good life being one that will be difficult at times but it will be worthwhile and I think in many of the you know the help self-help books or many much of the the literature around um, being being jazz hands happy all the time we've perhaps lost sight of that so I, I really wanted to kind of 
steer my boat on, along that course and, and expand our ideas about happiness to, to include sadness because that's important too. And actually there's lots of research to show that temporary sadness can be awakening, can make us happier. So I, I wanted to kind of bring that to the fore as well. Helen, you and I have in common the fact that we're both uh, UK emigres. Uh, we've escaped blighty for better or worse. I, I, this, this headline amused me this morning. Actually, it was from a couple of days ago. Uh, Britain is heading into a nightmarish winter uh, with a dark picture of the Houses of Parliament. Uh, the Brits, or at least the English, I'm not sure about the rest of the country, they deal very well with being miserable. And it almost made me miss the country. Uh, British people are very bad at being cheerful or indeed happy. Did you find in your book um, and in your your studies and your travels that some cultures were better at being sad, that we were happier at being sad? Yeah, absolutely. And I think although Brits like a moan, I don't think they are great at going with the real sort of earnest sadness. And then on the, on the other they're side... They're not very good at being earnest about anything, right? No, exactly. We don't really do earnest, um, despite what... Well, we so. leave that to the Americans. Well, interestingly, Americans are outliers in their desire to avoid sadness at all costs. So that was very interesting to come to terms with. Um, but yeah, you'll look at countries like Greece, where mourning is a big public affair, or... Bhutan, where crematoriums are centrally located, so kids grow up with the idea that loss and death are inevitable. There are cultures where the idea of, of suffering and, and death and loss as part of normal life is, is sort of bred in from an early age, like Russia, where, you know, sadness is is an encouraged emotion. It's thought that it's um, really useful. It's good for creativity. It's good for thinking. In much of East Asian culture, Stanford researchers have found um, there is much more nuance. It's completely okay to be happy and sad at the same time. And in countries like Japan, which is often compared to the US because both are wealthy, well-developed, well-developed healthcare systems, um, there is, um, psychologists in Japan will say, it never occurred to us to try and medicate away normal sadness or melancholy because it never occurred to us that that was a problem. So yeah, some really different approaches around the world. And, and I think that can only be a positive if we learn that there are other ways of being. Well, it's a positive uh, in a sense, but you can't escape your own culture. You're locked into that. Um, we had uh, Nicola uh, Rehani, a very, very talented um, scientist, social scientist on the, on the show a few months ago. She has a, a, a British-based uh, social scientist. She has a, a wonderful new book out, The Social in Instinct, How Our Corporations Shape the World. I, I know you believe that cooperation um, is in some ways, and the social is a very effective antidote to sadness. Particularly, you you hinted at it in 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 Greece and, and and other cultures which deal better with sadness than than other cultures. What is this connection between the social and sadness? How can it help us deal with sadness? Yeah, I think um, you know the strength of our personal relationships is the biggest indicator for happiness worldwide. So it's it's no surprise that actually when we when we are sad, that is what we lean on most as well. And and sadness can be a very it can be a, a time of rumination. It can be quite awakening. It can be quite creative. But it's also a time of real connection. It's sort of a reaching out. We know now that crying, Charles Darwin famously denied the usefulness of tears, but we know now that crying does serve a purpose because we reduce cortisol levels by, by expressing our sadness and the expressing it soothes us. So it's all social messaging. And um, in, a, in a lot of the, the research and a lot of the interviews that I did for this book, 
the people who seemed to have their stuff together and to handle sadness well were all people who made conscious efforts to reach out in their social connections to to give something back there's a whole economic theory of warm glow giving but but the idea that we are not a rock we are not an island that we have to reach out and if we are sad and we just do us we're likely to still be sad we it has to be part of a wider community and um, i was really inspired by the south african concept of ubuntu the idea that i am because you are we we can't do this in a vacuum and i think the last 18 months the the best you know the the, the best stories and the best um ways that we have felt about the pandemic have been times that we've come together and connected where I am in Denmark, they have um, this phrase Samfun Sin, or um, from Samfun meaning community and Sin meaning mind, and this community mindset that is talked about a lot during COVID. And and for me, for during sadness, that's been a really important um, touchstone. Uh, Nicola Rehan is uh, University College London colleague, Lucy Falks um, has also been on the show. Uh, she has a a very important new book out, Losing Our Minds, What Mental Illness Really Is. You underline the fact that sadness and mental illness are, are, are quite, I wouldn't say quite different, but they are different categories. How would you distinguish the two? Yes, I absolutely want to be clear. You know, depression is a chronic mental illness that usually requires help, whereas sadness is a, a temporary emotion. We feel that when we've experienced loss or disappointment, and I have I have had depression and I have had sadness and I have I've taken antidepressants and I've had years of therapy. So I feel well versed in this. I, I know I have a pretty good idea of what works and what doesn't. And what I am trying to argue is that we shouldn't pathologize normal sadness. The idea that there is something broken in us because we are feeling sad when, for example, there is a global pandemic isn't perhaps um, we, we shouldn't leap to the idea that there is something wrong with us. It sh we should look at what's going on. And you know, the DSM, which we use around the world. To be that you couldn't be diagnosed with depression for two months after you'd lost someone. And now that has been done away with. So I just want to highlight really that we are perhaps pathologizing normal sadness, medicalizing it, trying to take it away with technology or medicine when it might be something that we would be better off perhaps sitting with it if it is a temporary thing. Helen, a lot of people will be familiar with your, your best-selling work. I think it's out in about 22 languages, the, the year of living Danishly, and you're talking to me from your home in, in rural Denmark. Are the Danes better at being happy or sad than... Uh, the UK and, and the US. Um, of course, Denmark has always been the sort of the model in many ways, especially in the US. There was that famous incident uh, a few years ago in the Democratic uh, primaries uh, debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders when Bernie Sanders was eulogizing Denmark, saying we need to become like the Danish, borrow their social and economic system. And Hillary Clinton said, I love that, uh, Bernie, I love Denmark, but we can't be Danish. What are the Danes, how do the Danes help us understand happiness and particularly sadness? Is there something particular about what they contribute? Yeah, I think uh, for, for Denmark, I would say that they have taken away many of the reasons for unhappiness, for example. So with the welfare state means that in theory, everyone is looked after. You don't have so to be Bernie's right, Helen. We need Bernie to become right, like Denmark. I think the trust plays a big part. So because um, there is this trust that if people pay, pay these sky high eye watering taxes and they are eye watering, but there's a trust that the government will spend that money wisely, that everyone else will contribute. And you almost have the headspace to be happy, in my experience, if you're not 
anxious all the time that your neighbor is going to rob you to put food on the table. You know, Danes let their babies sleep outside in prams because they want them to get fresh air. There is not the worry that someone will steal your baby in Denmark. So they have a good work-life balance. They have this now world-famous idea of hygge or coziness or togetherness. Um, they are looked after. They have free healthcare, free education. It's a pretty good life and they have this trust. So yeah, I mean, the weather's terrible. I can testify to that, but they do have a lot of things in their favor and they do take away a lot of the reasons for unhappiness. We had Richard Grinker on the show last year. He has a new book out about mental happiness or mental illness, mental unhappiness, and he connects it with the growth of capitalism. Are you suggesting Leaving aside mental illness, I know you're not really writing about that in your book. Are you suggesting that happiness and sadness can be, um, the, the metric on those can be uh, made sense of in terms of the socioeconomic system in a culture, in a country? So, yeah, there is a lot of really interesting work about inequality and the link between inequality and addiction, um, because when we, we have you know, we feel the stress of inequality. There is a there is a price on wellness now. We used to think that money couldn't buy you happiness. We know now that actually you do need a certain amount of money to um, to to get by, to afford healthcare, to afford a, a good standard of living. And actually, when people are experiencing inequality, when you're living in a neighbourhood where some people are far wealthier than than others, then then that stress and that that desire to numb out um, can often be be played out via addictions and and that's you know this dissociative state of, of feeling like you don't want to be within yourself and we all you know addiction sounds like a big word but actually we all have something whether it's shopping or our smartphone or what's yours or helen what's your addiction i think um yeah i think food um i have i've kind of ticked them all off in the past i will share so um i've, I've kind of worked my way through them i i'd say these days i have to keep a quick pretty close eye on things i use everything in my mental and, and physical tool, toolkit to keep my health intact. But um, yeah, I think that the lure of social media, the the desire is, you know, anyone who's freelance that you feel you have to be on social media to, um, to get the work that you do out there, that can be really challenging for many of us. It's interesting that you bring up health. Um, we had the, the Israeli-based writer Talia Miran Shat. She's a behavioral economist and an, an analyst of health systems and on our relationship with our doctors. She believes that our relationship with our doctor, particularly in a, in, a, in a system like the American private enterprise healthcare system, is really important in terms of our own happiness. I assume in Denmark, you have a single payer NHS kind of system. Uh, but how is healthcare and our relationship with the system and doctors connected to ha happiness? I think, um, I think, as you say, it's this idea that you don't have to worry about it. I think um, wh where I am, for example, in rural Uland, um, there's re actually really high rates of uh, cancer, for example, because my fellow Uelanders really like to eat pork and potatoes and drink beer and eat ice cream, sometimes all at the same time. They are libertarians. They see it as they, they pay their taxes. They don't see it as the state's role to stop them. And they are free to, to live their lives. So it's almost like you can kind of live the American dream in Denmark. But I, I think there is a, a freedom and a peace of mind knowing that your health care is, is taken care of. And and, you know, you see in the US that that just isn't the case, that most families are one medical illness away from from bankruptcy in many cases. So I think it does make a big difference in terms of the headspace to be happy if you're not anxious all the time. I do want to come back to the US. You say it's an outlier, but let's also talk about age uh, and happiness. 
Uh, we had uh, the Washington, D.C.-based political writer, Jonathan Rausch, on the show recently. He has a new book out about truth, but he wrote a, a really good book a few years ago called The Happiness Curve, which actually I'd read uh, when life gets um, when life gets better after 50. It's a really good book. Um, you mentioned this book at the beginning of your book. Do you believe that age makes a difference in terms of happiness? Do you believe, like Rausch, that we actually get happier or less sad after the age of 50? Well, I mean, I'm hoping so. Let's let's find out. But I think um, what I found really interesting about the U-shaped curve is that it, it used to be that it was thought that we have this dip in, in middle age, you know, around our 40s because of the pressures of a whopping mortgage, uh, maybe caring responsibilities towards children and parents. But then zoologists found the same trend plays out in monkeys um, throughout the animal kingdom. So it's, it's thought that it's not that we're chasing big bananas, that when we are younger, we we need these reserves of enthusiasm to to get through. We have maybe have less um, material resources, and then as we approach old age, we focus on what really matters, which is our people. Again, it's our, our friends and family. Um, it's these personal connections again, and so we set our sights on those, and that makes us happier. So I am optimistic. I mean, it's it's nice to think that that's going to happen. But yeah, I certainly see the people around me. I'm in my forties. I see the people around me now having tough times, um, and not just because of the pandemic. So I, I think there's certainly something in that. We've talked about geography and age, uh, but the environment affects us however old we are and wherever we live. And it seems a, a really important theme when it comes to sadness. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, Losing Eden by mm -hmm. Lucy Jones. I think you'd find it really interesting. She's another UK-based academic. And she ties sadness with the loss of nature. Um, we had uh, Kinari, uh, Kinari Webb on the show recently, a couple of weeks ago. She basically says the same thing. Is there a connection between sadness and the destruction of the environment? Um, uh, Powers' book, uh, this, 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 this best-selling book, uh, Bewilderment, it's, a, it's um, an Oprah choice. It's, 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 it's very, uh, very popular in the United States at the moment. Uh, intimately brings together sadness and the destruction of the environment, like Jones and like so many other uh, environmental writers. What's your take on the current global warming crisis, the destruction of nature and sadness? Yeah, I think that there's certainly there's a couple of things there. So, for example, from Scandinavia, there's a lot of research from Aarhus near me in Denmark and um, from Norway, finding that children who play outside, for example, who are raised um, spending a lot of time in green spaces are less likely to develop psychiatric disorders as adults. Norwegian research has found that time outdoors and risky play has antiphobic effects. It makes us more resilient. And throughout Scandinavia and, and Germany, and you can see a few of them in the UK, you're seeing more of these forest schools where children are outside all the time um, and in Norway they have this great concept of free love to live or free air life and it's so crucial to Norwegians that it's um, it's the number one thing Norwegians put on their dating apps for one thing but also the head of the Norway's free love to live organization has a hotline to the prime minister because it's so accepted that it's crucial for mental health especially during the pandemic and he just got poached to head up Norway's equivalent of the Samaritans because it's it's just crucial for, for them to, to remain anywhere near the top of the happiness charts. So, yeah, I think that's certainly really important, just having that engagement with nature. And we, we've but as nature is destroyed, as it becomes too hot to go outside, as we lose our species, we've talked about that over the last few weeks, a discovery of more and more species being lost. Um, 
do you expect us to become sadder? I mean, yeah, I have to kind of hope that everything eventually follows a curve in the right direction. I think that there are enough studies um, showing that, you know, the more we consume and, you know, being depressed is bad for the environment and uh, because we shop more and then we get more depressed, this sort of loneliness loop and, and sadness loop. So, you know, I, I remain an optimist that the messages are getting out there. You're a defiant and, optimist, Helen. I, I don't think I can... optimist, yeah. I will not You're hard to, to make sad. Uh, what about oh, the issue yeah. of exercise? Uh, mm -hmm. We had Daniel Lieberman uh, on the show last year, written a wonderful book about the importance of exercise and running. Uh, I know you think that exercise and our mastery of our bodies is another effective antidote against sadness. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's so old now, isn't it? The the idea of the physical and mental benefits of exercise. But what I found really interesting researching how to be sad was speaking to Dr. Brendan Stubbs, who's you know, one of the leading experts in movement and mood. And he studied what happens when we don't exercise. And not only does exercise make us happier, but not exercising for just a few days and certainly for a week will actively make us sadder. Um, and he found with all of the, you know, there's a lot of pressure out there, especially if you look in the media or social media, there's this idea of the 10,000 steps, but actually all we need to be doing is 20 minutes of, of light exercise outdoors every day. So that can just be walking and we'll have a, a reduced risk of depression by 30%. So startling statistics in terms of, of lifestyle medicine with just quite light exercise that I found really helpful. And then there's so much evidence now around cold water swimming and, and the idea that it will stress our body and our body will get used to that stress. And so it won't find the stress of normal life quite so grueling. I tried that. I found it fairly stressful, but um, you know, a lot of people swear by it. So I think, yeah, for me now, exercise is a non-negotiable, but I'm certainly not doing any Ironmans or anything like that. Well, it sort of fits in with a, another book you wrote, Leap uh, Year, which is about the value of small steps, both literally and, and, and metaphorically. What about America? You, you mentioned that they're an outlier. People don't want to be sad. What's happened in America? What's gone wrong here? And old perennial subject, um, uh, talking about a, a country that is sad, that refuses to even acknowledge sadness. What's happening in America, Helen? Well, it's so interesting. I spoke to Jeannie Sai um, at Stanford about this uh, at length, and um, she had ideas that it's maybe to do with pioneer values, um, that early settlers uh, who, who left discomfort in search of better things and remained optimistic and remained sort of extroverted and had sort of these outward um, ideals all the time rather than sitting back and ruminating tended to succeed. And so there's a, there's a hangover from that. I think there is also a culture where activity is prized and inactivity is not. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours pub, as, as popularized in, in the outliers. Well, actually, that study is based on uh, Ericsson, a Swedish psychologist who studied... But, but Americans are the least, of the, perhaps the most sedentary people in the world. So it's not... I yeah, mean, there, but I, there may be the cult of exercise and movement, but most of them don't move. But I think there's still a very there's still that reluctance to sit with the sadness. And if we sit with it, not distracting ourselves necessarily on Netflix or with, you know, with with snacks, but it's it's the actually being with that sadness and and I think being open to the idea of of being present and that it's not necessarily we have to buy a mindfulness app. We don't have to buy an expensive candle. The, these are free things without market forces. This is just sitting with the feelings that we have, which are hopefully going to allow them to pass on more quickly. Well, How to Be Sad is not a sad book about sadness, but it's a serious book. It's very readable. It's very engaging. It's very intimate and personal about Helen's 
own story, a relationship with her mother and her father, who she, she, she doesn't deal with anymore, uh, and her dead sister and her husband and her children. It's, it's, it's a really good read. It's been out in the UK, I think, for, a, what, a year, Helen, and it's just out in the US. Um, what about other books on sadness or other movies or other pieces of music? I have to admit that my favorite work of art, a masterpiece on sadness, is Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, his 1975 album about the breakup of his marriage. What are your favorite works of art on sadness? I Yeah, I do like the, um, the idea of the emotional arousal when we're on the edge of something to just push us into that emotional space and, and have kind of that good cathartic moment. Um, I think... I, I'm a sucker for, for anything sort of Bronte-ish and we'll get my weep onto that sometimes. I recently have almost over-engaged with Succession, which I came late to, but I'm it's so stressful and you feel so much pain for these children who have clearly had a terrible time to start with um, that, yes, that, that can give us that. You know, it's the ultimate in empathy, isn't it? When we read a book, for example, and we're putting ourselves in their shoes. So, Yes, anything around arts and culture where we are able to experience that sadness uh, when someone else is, is going through it stretches us in some way, I think is quite helpful. What about your favourite philosopher? He comes up a lot in your <laughs> book, uh, Kierkegaard. And there's nothing Kierkegaardian, I think, about your work, for better or worse. Uh, should we be reading Kierkegaard too? Uh, Kierkegaard, uh, uh, um, Helen? Yeah, I, I think he. I think he's great. Although interestingly, I'm working on something with to do with Hans Christian Andersen right now, and Kierkegaard was very rude about Hans Christian Andersen. But yeah, Kierkegaard had um, had a really the gloomy Dane. He had some really great ideas around sadness. He he said that there is bliss in melancholy. So a bit like this Portuguese idea of sudaji, the sort of beauty in melancholy and reminiscing. He he liked um, sadness, and he thought it was a really good despair and sadness were really good emotions for stopping you in your tracks it's a message to tell you when something is wrong and what you should do about it but you have to be still and you have to listen and it's also quite a creative space he felt because if you carry on doing the same thing you'll get the same result but if you are sad and you stop uh then you might think of something different so he was quite pro sadness and yeah he was quite gloomy well helen uh, i'm not sure if helen russell's new book how to be sad is pro sadness but it's it's um i think it's very balanced very fair about the relationship between sadness and happiness and how to deal with sadness. It's its a wonderful read. Congratulations then, Helen, on, on the new book, at least new to the United States. It's already out in, in the UK. Uh, and I hope we'll have you back on the show again to talk about all your cultural analyses of our emotions. You're a very valuable asset as we make sense of the world in the early 21st century. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'd love to.